Before we start today's show, a warning that some of the discussion and audio in this episode could be hard to hear. So please keep that in mind as you decide when and with whom you listen. What can you tell those families that believe the local police officers didn't do their job? Well, you know, I'm not part of the investigation, but I mean, what I am part of, I think the truth will come out. And I think that when you see that uh, we get all the facts out, we'll, I mean, we will know what happened, as tragic as it is. And, but these families deserve the answers, and we will make sure that they get the answers and it's transparent. And if we made mistakes, we'll own those mistakes. On Wednesday afternoon, just over a week after the shooting at Robb Elementary School, the mayor of Uvalde, Texas, Don McLaughlin, sat down with reporters from Telemundo San Antonio and The Post. He answered questions about the shooting and about how police responded. One of the reporters in the room with him was our colleague, Sylvia foster Frau. There were a lot of desperate parents, as I'm sure you know, like trying to get into the building, trying to save their children. Did you see them there, and do you believe that the way that they handled that situation was appropriate? I, I was on what I would call the east end of, of Rob campus. Took place on the west end, and I did not see it. I can tell you as a father myself, I would have probably been one that would have had to have been restrained myself. As so many of us have been watching the news out of Uvalde, it's been shocking to see the reports of how long it took police to stop the gunman and how frustrated parents who were trying to get their kids out were restrained by police. People in this community are demanding answers and even accusing law enforcement of lying about how their response unfolded. I can tell you this, the local authorities have not lied to anyone. Now the questions are just getting more urgent. What was police protocol? What actually happened on that day? And what went wrong? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, June 1st. More than a week after the shooting at Robb Elementary, there is still so much that we don't know. Today, we're talking with our colleague, Sylvia Foster-Frau, who's been reporting from Uvalde. She's been tracking down answers about the timeline of that day, figuring out what was happening inside and outside of the school, and why law enforcement responded the way that they did. That morning of Tuesday... The grandmother of the gunman called law enforcement after she had been shot in the face by him. And we know, too, that sometime around 1130, the gunman crashed his car near Robb Elementary School and was carrying a gun. We know this because someone saw this happen and called 911. Then, from what we understand, he rushed towards the building, firing as he went at bystanders. In the next few minutes, hundreds of rounds were fired off into these adjoining fourth grade classrooms where the gunman initially entered. From there, authorities were rushing to the scene. 
made entry. And we know from there that at some point there were 19 officers that had converged. This is around new at this point, but they were still had not entered the classroom where the gunman was. And from that point on, we know two things were happening. One, there were a series of 911 calls from children mm-hmm. within the classrooms asking for help, pleading for police. We also know that the officers at this point, from what we understand, had been told that this was not an active shooter situation, but a barricaded suspect situation. And basically that meant that they should wait for more tactical teams that had better gear to arrive. We also know happening around the same time in this hour long-ish period is that there were parents outside of the school who had heard and were aware of the gunshots happening in their school and were trying to enter it, but were told by police outside the school not to and were being held back by that. All the parents are going to the front. All the parents are going to the front. All the parents are going to the front. Just shoot them already. Man, y'all can't be like that, man. Y'all can't be like that when there's people. Yes, I do. Get across the street. Because I'm having to deal with you. Get across the street. Get across the street. We're going to back up. Are you going to walk into that gate and get them? Y'all get fine with so all of this is happening during this extremely long period where children were calling 911, um, where we know that the gunman was also kind of taunting teachers and students. You know, he said, like, good night at one point before shooting at a teacher, according to reports. Oh and then basically by around 1.06 p.m. is when he is apprehended. And that's done because a squad, from what we understand, it's a squad of BORTAC agents, so Border Patrol agents that are very highly trained, that entered kind of in a row with a ballistic shield, and they enter into the classroom, and he bursts forth from a closet in the classroom and starts firing. And they are able, in the end, to shoot and kill the gunman. So from beginning to end, you're saying that this took about 90 minutes from the beginning of the shooting to the time that, that, that the shooter was shot. Yep, that's right. And that's the number and the question that has been on journalists' minds and even more so, I imagine, on the minds of all of the residents and families here as they you know, cope with the aftermath of this horrific tragedy. I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine anything that could make the circumstances of 19 children dying like this even more unbearably sad and terrifying. But the idea that there was so long of him in the classroom talking to these children um, is hard to hard to imagine. Yeah, on Friday when the DPS official was recounting the 911 calls, I think everyone was just arrested in that moment, listening to the call after call. You know, there was one girl who called, and then 40 minutes later, we know she called again, still asking and pleading for help. The caller identified, I'll not say her name, but she was in room 112, called 911 at 12.03. The duration of the call was one minute and 23 seconds. She identified herself and whispered, she's in room 112. At 12.10, she called back, and room 12 advised her multiple dead. 
Again, she called on the phone. Again at 12.16, she called back and said there was eight to nine students alive. So what do we know about what law enforcement thought was happening inside? I mean, like, what was being communicated to them about, about yeah, what was happening in, in the classroom? We really don't understand that, Martine. I wish, I think we all wish we had better answers to that question. We do know that there were... Mm-hmm many, you know, rounds fired off in the beginning when the gunmen stormed and that those rounds became more sporadic as time went on. And so that's possibly one explanation. But at the same time, we know that there were 911 calls coming through the whole time. And Mm -hmm. there's also the question of, you know, those children that had been shot at and were injured in the classroom, like, would they have potentially even been saved or been rescued if they had you know, intervened more quickly. So we really don't understand. We have no insight so far as to what the communications were that led to that decision. Mm-hmm. And reporters have been continually asking this question to authorities. And so far, we have not gotten an answer back on on those inner workings of what went into that decision. And what law enforcement agencies are we talking about here who were involved in responding to the shooting? Sure. So the The main folks involved were the local police for the town of Uvalde. We know there were also county sheriff's deputies there, as well as agents from Border Patrol, which is a federal agency. And then also the small police force of Uvalde Consolidated Independent School District. So the school district's small police force was also present there. And from what we understand, their chief, who is Pedro Pete Arredondo, was the, quote, incident commander, which means that he was the one who likely made that call to wait for folks with more technical gear to arrive. So talk more about that, this decision to wait for more officers with more technical gear to show up to the scene before entering this classroom um, and getting to the shooter. How does that square with practices and protocols that are supposed to be in place for situations like this? Sure. So when I talked to one of the DPS, so Texas State um, Law Enforcement Authorities last week, he repeated what we understood from experts, which is that in active shooter situations, you're supposed to go directly toward the threat. You do not stop. You do not pause. You go directly toward that. And this was learned actually after the Columbine shooting, that this was the common and expected. And the rule is that that's what you do. So you're right in the sense that that doesn't square away with this call that the chief of police made, except for the fact that It had not been deemed at that point an active shooter situation. It had been deemed a barricaded subject situation, which then changes the rules. Um, So it still kind of ends up going back to that question of, you know, why was basically the label of the situation? Why was how we're characterizing what's happening? Why did that change? And and what would be the rules in a barricaded shooter situation? Yeah, so in, in that kind of situation, then that gives the officers more time then to wait for folks with better gear that are better equipped to take on someone with an assault-style rifle. And do we know to what extent any of these law enforcement agencies involved in responding to the shooting had practiced for these situations or were 
trained to know how they were supposed to respond to active shooter um, situations? Yeah, so we know that the school police chief, Pete Arredondo, completed an eight-hour active shooter training course um, in December 2021, according to other reports. And he had done a similar course as well in 2020. I think across the country, these are relatively common at this point, unfortunately. And so, yes, there, there had been trainings in the past for this kind of situation. So what are some of the theories behind why agents wouldn't have followed the active shooter protocols in this situation? Like, what are some of the um, factors that you've heard could have been at play here that made this go so wrong? I think some of the folks here, people who are still supportive of law enforcement and their decision that day, have told me that none of us were there in those moments. None of us can really say what it was like in those minutes and what the state of facts was for all of those folks there. And so it's really hard for us to understand kind of what they were going through in such a high intensity environment. So I've, I've been hearing that a lot. And you also hear from folks, hey, you know, maybe Arredondo, the chief of police, wasn't given all of the information he should have been given to make that kind of a decision. Um, so he maybe made it on incomplete information that should have been given to him. Other folks also say maybe he did make the wrong decision, but the agents under him, I guess, are just trying to follow their commander's orders. And that's what they are told to do. So that's what they carry out and understand. So I think, you know, there's a fair amount of folks here. It's hard to say how many as a reporter because this isn't a polling or survey operation, but there are a fair amount of folks here who just say, we still don't have enough information to point blame on one agency or another. And the fact that there were also so many agencies that responded to this, I mean, I I know that in other situations like this, it is very easy for there to be miscommunications when there are different, you know, police and a sheriff's office and state police and and that there can be opportunities for lines to get crossed when you are dealing with different teams of people. And I wonder if that is a theory as to why this situation didn't go how it should have. Yeah, well, a lot of people talk about just about how this is a small town, you know, it has a little over 15,000 people. And so when you're talking about the kind of you know, equipment you need and personnel you need to handle something of this magnitude. Uh, A lot of folks would just say, like, it it required the involvement, obviously, of all these other agencies. But because of that, like, they just aren't equipped to handle something like that. And I'll add to Martine, like, it brings a lot of folks to question um, when it comes to questions of gun control and semi-automatic weapons, assault-style weapons. If police, you know, are having to wait for more police or better equipped police to handle one 18-year-old armed in this way, I guess that contributes a lot to the gun control debate, right? Because folks are saying, hmm. if, if police can't even handle this, then why, mm-hmm. why are we allowing this on the streets? And so that's also raised a lot of questions to residents in the community about whether or not he should have been able to purchase that gun in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, because so much of that is like central to the argument of gun rights advocates that 
you know, the the phrase, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And yet this is a situation where you have many quote-unquote good guys with guns who are at the scene and unable to respond for one reason or another. And, you know, frankly, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of walking into a classroom with someone with an assault rifle is like a pretty... A, a pretty difficult thing to do. But at the same time, like, this is the argument that is being made about how to respond to and prepare for shootings is just to have more police and more people with guns who are ready re- to respond. And clearly that's an imperfect solution. That's right. You know, obviously it's understandable to be afraid to go into a room where an active shooter is. But, you know, folks are saying, and it's true, that police are literally trained for that purpose, right? And not even just, you know, to risk their lives for others and, you know, having these role as the protectors of the community that they do, but also that police, by this point in, you know, American history, a lot of them have had active shooter trainings and should know to just go straight toward the shooter, toward the danger, toward, you know, where people are getting hurt. And so for them, it's just, in that sense, you know, it is unthinkable, I think, that police could be waiting outside of a classroom while that was taking place inside and for so long. After the break, we hear what it was like for parents outside the school and why their reaction to how law enforcement responded is complicated. We'll be right back. Sylvia, we've also seen so many videos um, and heard accounts of family members who were outside of the school as the shooting was um, unfolding and who were told to wait um, by police officers or prevented from entering the school to try to rescue their children. Can you talk a little bit about some of those accounts that we've heard and, and what we know about what was happening outside of the school when it comes to those parents who were gathered? Yeah, Martine. So we know that because the whole incident, you know, took over an hour. At that point, parents had started gathering around the school. Look, they're just off parking outside, man. They need to go in there. Videos emerged of parents trying to get into the school to save their children, trying to jump a fence, trying to run as close as they can to find their child. The cops ain't doing but standing outside. Like our kids are there, man. My son's right there. And law enforcement that was outside was preventing them from doing so. And so you had these videos of parents screaming at police officers. Um, You know, one man saying there's six-year-old kids in there. They don't know how to defend themselves from a shooter. You know that they're kids, right? They're little kids. They don't know how to defend themselves. Six-year-old kids in there, they don't know how to defend themselves from a shooter. And so you have these parents desperate to protect and save their children being prevented from doing so by law enforcement as the entire incident just drags on and on. 
it has to be the worst feeling in the world to not be able to protect your child when you can see and hear and know that they are in danger and they're not that far away from you. And I, I imagine those parents, along with so many of the other families here, are going to be grappling with and trying to cope with and understand what happened and really how to even relate to the law enforcement, many of whom are members of their community, going forward from hmm. this. Let's say, say more about that. What do you mean? Well, the, the community here, a lot of folks work for Border Patrol, work in the police department, you know, work in the school system. And so it's not like you have these very clear cut lines of one side or the other. Like this is a community, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of folks here work in those very agencies that we're trying to save. In some cases, you know, you hear, hear reports of law enforcement officers who had children in that elementary school. And so it's a very wow. tight knit, interconnected, small community. And they know each other and many are friends. And then now they have this incredible tragedy happen that I think unifies them in the sense of what happened to them, but also causes them to point questions at folks that are their neighbors and other members of their community. Hmm. And and what is going to happen from here? Like, are these officers going to potentially face consequences? Will there be more kind of formal processes to ask these questions and start to figure out what went wrong? Well, I guess I can say, you know, we know there's several ongoing investigations into what happened that could potentially yield to consequences, though we also know... Um, from previous reporting and in the history of this country that a lot of times, you know, harsh punishments are often not doled out to police, especially, you know, in this unique situation where it's not um, unwarranted mm -hmm. act of violence committed by police that's videotaped on camera, but rather, you know, a, a series of maybe inaction by police or the wrong call being made that you know, you would have to go into hypothetical to say whether or not that could have saved more lives or not. And so I think because mm -hmm. of that, there's just really a lot of uncertainty about where this could lead. And we also know that the school police chief, Pete Arredondo, who was the incident commander at the time, um, he had also recently won a seat on the city council. And though they canceled the swearing-in ceremony, the mayor basically came out in in basic support of him by saying that, you know, he would be, you know, still taking the oath of office and that he would still continue with that leadership role for the city. So where do things go from here then? Or what is next for this town that is both having to bury so many people, so many children and face this unimaginable grief and also trying to ask these very serious questions around responsibility and fault and blame and, and, and why this happened the way it did. This is an event that like, has changed everyone's lives here in the community. There will always be kind of the before and after of this, right? It's hmm. such a horrific an event that is happening right you know, in their backyards that 
that's the kind of thing that changes you, you know, to have to go through that kind of grief, to have to go through the national attention over that grief, to go through the questions of what went wrong that day, what could have changed, the feeling of helplessness of not being able to protect your own children, you know. I think those are just such life-defining events that on an individual level, all of these folks will, um, I think they'll just never be the same. How, how could you return to how you were before after experiencing something mm. like this? So the question really is, well, how do I move forward? How do I create this new life after this thing just happened to us that we never expected, but that hurts a lot? Sylvia, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Martine. Sylvia Foster Frau is a reporter for the National Desk at The Post. Teo Armas contributed to this reporting. The story was produced by Renis Fernovsky and Andrea Salcedo. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.